Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Avi Cooper and Tony Brew. Hey, guys. Hey, Hannah. Hey. All right. Today, we have more to say about fever. So in episode 21, we talked about the connection between fever and rigors and whether either can predict bacteremia. Tony, why don't you tell us, what are we going to talk about about fever today? All right. So we're going to go a little bit further back in time, um, probably hundreds of millions of years. And we're going to explore even more basic questions, uh, like why do humans experience fever? And we'll also talk about why other creatures experience fever, talk a little bit about the melibotic cause to fever, and we'll probably touch at least a little bit on antipyretics, such as acetaminophen and NSAIDs. Tony, one of the things I love about these fundamental questions that you ask is they often require us to go back hundreds of millions, if not billions of years. <laughs> to find the answer. Uh, so where do you want to start this one? Yeah, so we won't go back this, uh, like uh, discussions of oxygen, we won't go back to, you know, oxidative burst in, in billions of years, but, but we will start probably 100 million years back. Because um, we got to talk about the emergence of fever and the evolution of fever. And what's amazing uh, new kid is on that- the block. <laughs> exactly, right. It's only been around for about 600 million years. And it's interesting because it, it, it emerged after innate immunity, which is probably over a billion years old, uh, but fever is older than adaptive immunity, which is only you know, a, you know, a couple hundred million years old. And it's been conserved evolutionarily uh, over time, which suggests it has true benefits. Gosh, adaptive immunity is basically the millennial in this situation. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So you said conserved evolutionarily. What does that mean? Right. So all vertebrates, uh, including ectotherms, right, cold-blooded creatures, uh, they experience fever. So uh, all vertebrates do. And there are, in fact, downsides of fever, as as we'll talk about. So it should be selected against, you know, fever should be selected against if it didn't have strong benefits, given the fact that it's got drawbacks. And the fact that it hasn't been selected against, and another way of saying this is it's been conserved across species, across all vertebrates, suggests that the benefits of fever outweigh the risks of it. Did you say that cold-blooded animals can become febrile? Yeah, so this totally blew my mind. Um, there are other creatures that, that experience fever that blew my mind even more, but yeah, e ectotherms, right, the cold-blooded animals, um, they can't regulate their own temperature, right? They're instead subject to the, the temperature of their environment. So if they have a change in the set point of their hypothalamus and the hypothalamus, you know, increases the set point, they have to move to a warmer location with a higher temperature to have a higher temperature themselves, okay? They're not going to shiver uh, they're probably not going to put on a blanket. They're just going to go to a warmer environment. And so, again, if you think about, like, the uh, the drawbacks to this, and so the evolutionary pressure against fever, if you move to a warmer environment, this typically places you in an area susceptible to predators, right? So this is maybe one example of a time where sunbathing is not good for you. Well, there are probably other examples, too, but this is one example for sure. But how is this like figured out? These seem like really complicated questions. Yeah. So um, there, like, is what a lizard is thinking. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. So we can't necessarily ask the the lizard why are you moving over there, uh, but there are ask. some really uh, uh, cool experiments. 
The first is a famous series of studies um, done by Matthew Kluger and a few other researchers, and they um, studied ectothermic lizards uh, called Dipsosaurus dorsalis. And so the, in, in the first set of experiments, and these were published in 1974, they infected these lizards with one of their known pathogens, Eremonis hydrophila. And then they put him in a wooden box. And at one end of the box, the temperature was 30 degrees Celsius. And at the other end of the box, the temperature was 50 degrees Celsius. And so they let them equilibrate after you know a day or so, and then they infected them. And after they infected them, they moved to the warmer part of the box such that their temperature increased by two degrees Celsius. Okay, so you infect these lizards they move to a warmer environment, and they themselves get warmer. Right? So that's nice and all, but it doesn't prove that it's giving them a benefit. So the following year, the same set of researchers published a study in which they took the same species of lizards and then again infected with Eremonis. But this time, they put them in boxes with controlled temperatures. They had a cold box, a medium box, and a hot box. And 75% of the lizards placed in the warm box, and this was set at 42 degrees Celsius, which is 107.6, three quarters of those lizards survived. Only 25% of the lizards at 38 degrees survived, and zero lizards at 34 degrees survived. Right? So the higher temperature seemed to lead to better outcomes after they were infected with Eremonis. Okay, but how do we how do we know that it wasn't just being cold that killed the lizards? Right, right. I don't think of them as winter animals. Right. Actually, I just went to the zoo this past weekend, and um, I distinctly remember walking past the the lizard section, and they they had a sign that said, "Basically, we're inside right now. It's too cold outside." So it's a reasonable <laughs> question. Like maybe it's just that you know you put them at thirty four degrees Celsius, and maybe none of them would have survived independent of Eremonis, right? So that's that's a perfect question. So the first thing I'll say is that ectotherms regulate their temperature at a much wider range than do endotherms, warm blooded animals. So about eight degrees for ectotherms, whereas we endotherms, our normal range of temperatures is only varied by about a degree. But in these studies, the investigators also had a control where they injected the lizards with saline. And the survival rate in the cold box, right, the 34-degree box, was 100% when they injected them with saline, right? So when they injected them with Eremonis and put them in a cold box, the survival was 0%. They injected them with saline and put them in a cold box, their survival was 100%. So the lizards do just fine at 34 degrees as long as they're not infected with Eremonis. And I'm guessing this wasn't warm saline? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, this was not warm. I, well, actually, they don't comment on the temperature of the saline, but so, uh, or at least I don't remember. So we'll go with, yeah, it was not warm saline, probably 34 degrees. We'll give them benefit of the doubt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they flew and resuscitated the livers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the, the lizards. So I think we have set the record for most robust discussion of lizard physiology on a medical podcast. I'm going to just go out there and say that maybe we have done that. Uh, but is there anything other than lizards that kind of supports <laughs> um, the benefits of fevers? <laughs> yes. Okay. So um, eventually we will get to humans, I promise. So um, simple thing, fish swim to warmer water when infected. Um, and just as uh, with lizards, if you infect 
fish with Eremonis hydrophila, they survive better at, at, in warmer water, suggesting some benefit to the increased temperatures. And then there was a really fascinating set of studies on honeybees. Right, so honeybees usually maintain a hive temperature that's a little bit higher than the ambient temperature. But honeybees exhibit this specialized behavioral response when the hive has a fungal infection with Ascophera apis. And they raise the temperature of the hive when they detect this fungus. And what they do is the adult bees increase their wing muscle activity and that increase in wing muscle activity and wing activity increases the temperature of the hive in response to the fungal infection. And I thought that was like just like super cool. That is the wildest thing I've ever heard. And I'm about to tell 10 people about it. <laughs> okay, do you have any more like fun facts? How about the idea that plants experience fever? Um, so, so I did find one study where the temperature of the leaves from a bean plant, uh, Phaseolus vulgaris, increased by about two degrees Celsius after the plant was infected with a fungus. So absolutely shockingly to me, um, it appears that even plants can experience fever, which I, I don't even know what to say about that. There are two thoughts going through my head. The first is, <laughs> holy cow, like... How is this happening? How does a plant have a fever? That is like not something that I, that has not been in my mental framework for how nature works. <laughs> <laughs> and the second thought is, how can we give this plant acetaminophen to bring that fever down? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> That's obviously what Tony's about to be tiling all of us. <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay, so we said that we were going to get back to humans at some point. <laughs> yeah. Do you have, you know, like octopodes or something to tell us about first? Or <laughs> Well, I don't know. Avi mentioned the word cow. Maybe I should talk about cow fevers for a little bit before we move on to humans. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, the reality is that there are obviously studies um, linking fever and outcomes in humans, but it's a little bit harder to control it. Uh, compared to like an ectotherm where you just put them in a box or put them in warmer water. Because a lot of the ways that we control fever in humans is by giving them antipyretics. And antipyretics, of course, have all sorts of effects beyond just their fever-lowering um, mechanism. With that said, um, I'll offer a meta-analysis from 2017 that showed fever is associated with lower mortality in sepsis. So in this meta-analysis, if you had fever mortality was 22%. If you had a normal temperature, the mortality was 31%. And the patients with hypothermia had a mortality of 47%. And again, this was a meta-analysis of patients uh, with sepsis. Okay, so you've also mentioned that fever can have downsides evolutionarily. What are they? Right, because right now it kind of sounds like let's just... yeah all sit in a sauna with the lizards and raise our temperature and we'll be immune to all infections. Like Febrile all day. Yeah, yeah, like why not? So the most obvious downside to fever is the metabolic cost. So there was one study that was published actually 100 years ago in 1921, and it found that for every one degree Celsius increase in temperature, the metabolic rate increases 13%. And so 
when you have an increased metabolic rate, that means you need to consume more calories or else you'll lose weight. And for, you know, most of history, it wasn't that easy to consume more calories, right? So for creatures in the wild, it means they got to go out in places and they may get predation. And certainly for most of human history, increasing caloric intake wasn't that easy. So the metabolic cost is probably one of the biggest drivers against just like continuously ramping up our temperature. But it's still been conserved over the course of 600 million years. Yes. <laughs> so there must be some benefit here, right? Yeah, there's so, got to be, right? So uh, it's got to be right, help. It's got to be helping us somehow, right? And we're we're seeing evidence of it in terms of outcomes in um in animals and in this meta analysis, at least, is an association with better outcomes. What have you guys heard in the past about the like protective effect of fever, like against microorganisms? Like, like what had you heard was the benefit? If I if I were pressed to answer, I would probably say something sort of hand wavy about denaturing and different proteins and maybe differences in lipid envelope structures. Uh, but I would entirely be making that up. Avi, did you have anything? Some some like hand wavy thing about iron availability for like organisms and Ooh, yes, you know and sequestering that iron away so they can't use it uh was about the extent of my not my very very vague knowledge of how maybe fevers help yeah i didn't i didn't have any knowledge and i i actually assumed what what hannah said which is that you raise the temperature and it led to denaturing of protein so that, that's just like what i assumed was going on and so i always assumed there was this like direct effect of fever range temperatures on pathogens and there is some supporting data for this, though it's probably not just like proteins being denatured. So for example, treponema pallidum, which is the spirochete that causes syphilis, is known to be very sensitive to fever range temperatures in vitro. And this is probably one of the reasons why fever therapy was used to treat syphilis, and in fact was used to treat syphilis even after penicillin was discovered. And there are other organisms that appear to have um, negative growth or poor growth in the setting of fever, right? So direct effects on the organisms. But the sense I've gotten in reviewing this topic is that it's the immune modulating effects of fever that are more important and lead to more of the benefit for the organisms that experience fever. So what are the immune modulating effects? Uh, unsurprisingly to me, when I thought about like how effective fever is, it, it actually does a lot. Um, so it affects the innate immune system. It affects the adaptive immune sy system. And so I'll give you one example. Just in neutrophils, fever range temperatures lead to an increase in neutrophil release from bone marrow, an increase in extravasation of neutrophils into tissues, and an increase in neutrophil respiratory burst. And other innate immune cells like NK cells and macrophage are also positively affected. And the same is seen with the adaptive immune system, like T cells, B cells, they all seem to do better at fighting pathogens at fever range temperatures. And, you know, going back to that mechanism that I had heard about with the iron availability, is there anything to that or was that just uh, spurious? No, I think there is something to that. Um, and there seems to be an overlap with either the direct pathogen effect or via the immune response and, and iron. And so, you know, one example is that the production of siderophores is temperature dependent with almost complete suppression of siderophores at 40 degrees Celsius 
in Salmonella uh, typhimurium. And, and so as a reminder, siderophores are these iron chelating molecules that bacteria use to scavenge iron for their own use, because all microorganisms need iron. And again, at these higher temperatures, these siderophores aren't produced nearly as well. And so there's experimental data suggesting that at these fever range temperatures, because siderophores are suppressed, uh, that is one of the mechanisms of decreased bacterial growth. So, so you're saying so not that the the body is sequestering iron away from the the bacterium, but it can't utilize the iron available the, to the, it. it. Undoubtedly, in the setting of infection, we sequester iron. Okay. Right? We okay. So place we do it within macrophages. We we absolutely do that. Okay. Okay. Whether or not that mechanism is related to fever directly or indirectly, I actually don't know. Um, but there seems to be a direct effect of, uh, of fever itself on siderophores, and, and that relates to iron. But there's a, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we do um, with iron in the setting of acute infection. And so you're absolutely right. We definitely sequester it. So based on what you're telling us, it sounds like the in-hospital uh, reflex to immediately lower fevers might not be the best approach for all patients. Is that fair to say? Yeah. <laughs> Have fever, probably. must get it down, get that fever down right now, right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, and I, you know, I, I, I know that when I was an intern, it was very common for me to write on most of my admitted patients in order for acetaminophen PRN fever, just like as a, you know, garden variety order. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear from Hannah if like, you know, interns in 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 her class, or if you know, Hannah, you yourself, like routinely write this, even if someone doesn't have like concern that they are going to have huge spiking fevers. Are we are we like routinely writing for antipyretics? It is a standard PRN, yeah. Um, just like for pain, also for pain, like as an adjuvant for pain. Um, we have really incredible nurses at my hospital who will often ask us, "Do you do you want to give that PRN or not?" Um, and, and the most common reason that I hear sort of the question about it is, is fear of masking. Um, but my general practice is if someone asks me to say, well, if the patient's not symptomatic, we don't need to give it. Uh, but that is not at all based on an evolutionary understanding of, of fever, I will say. <laughs> yeah. And I don't. And, and rather an evolutionary understanding that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I understand. After 600 uh, million years, I think the mechanism of fever uh, probably isn't broken. Um, but, you know, we yeah. definitely don't have the time to cover um, all the data on antipyretics in humans and animals. I, I'll probably share in the show notes for this episode some of the studies. But I'll say that, you know, based on what I've read, most studies show no benefit to lowering temperature, it, certainly in adults, um, and I think in, in many pediatric studies. And there's some studies that even suggest harm to lowering uh, temperatures in the setting of acute infection. So you know, after reviewing this and, and reading other people's opinion, my bias has shifted a bit away from using antipyretics for their fever-lowering effects and rather using them as analgesics, right? So if fever is uncomfortable to my patient, I think it makes sense to use it. Um, but purely to lower their temperature, um, I'm probably going to do that a lot less often than I did before reading about this. Now, I'll say, Avi, I, I know you found an interesting case report that 
it helps to highlight that there are some patients who have predisposing conditions where we might want to be more aggressive about lowering fever. I don't know if you want to share that. Yeah, the case report was around, um, there was a case series looking at patients with Brugada syndrome and what the effects were of fever. And there was a higher incidence of ventricular arrhythmias in patients like that who were predisposed to ventricular arrhythmias. So that's a very specific, narrow you know, case um, and slice of a of population that maybe would have a physiologic rationale to not fever, period, um, and try to get that, that temperature down. But I think your point is really well taken that I think it's an issue of reflexivity that just not every fever right. requires uh, treatment just in its own if the patient is not having kind of significant symptoms related to it. Exactly. Exactly. It's like tyl- or it's it's like potassium. Like, should we really be necessarily repleting to four if they don't have an underlying reason to have an arrhythmia? I can answer that for you. The answer is um, no. But <laughs> but I think that's another. I think that's another. I think that's like Tony's favorite thing to talk oh, God. about. If you, so. it, yeah. Stay tuned yeah, if next it, time on the Curious Clinicians. I, I, poor interns who have to like have me as their attending. Like after like the first or second day, I'm like, all right, guys, instead of doing rounds this morning, let's talk about potassium repletion for three hours. It's just it's just so brutal. Uh, and they know it's As coming. to talking about sodium for three hours. Okay. We have talked about a lot. We have covered approximately 600 million years of evolution, both of plants, honeybees, humans, fungi. So, so Tony, can you give us a couple take-home points? Sure. So um, first, fever uh, is preserved evolutionarily, right? You know, creatures who have evolved to experience fever have generally maintained the ability to experience fever. And this does suggest it has benefits. And the preservation of fever is important to recognize because it has costs too. And the biggest cost is the metabolic cost to fever. Um, you know, every time you increase, uh, the temperature, you're increasing the metabolic, uh, rate. And, um, that means you got to eat or somehow find more calories. Another thing is that the benefits of fever probably relate to both an, a direct anti-pathogen effect, but also its ability to augment the innate in adaptive immune response. And some of these, uh, interactions probably relate to, to iron as Avi, uh, pointed out. Um, and then I would argue that in general, uh, antipyretics are overused, though there are situations where um, the direct antipyretic effect is probably valuable. That was so, so fascinating. I'm just going to say, Tony, <laughs> like, uh, like I'm thinking like you, I'm looking at the world differently now. The wings, you know? the entire yeah. hive beats their <laughs> yeah. wings more yeah, to I mount mean, a fever. I mean, it's it seems like it's almost like intrinsic to life. Almost, oh yeah, you know, to like comp- complex life. Like having the ability to make to, to fever is really important. It's it yeah, it's pretty foundational. So thank you so much. So that wraps up another episode of the Curious Clinicians. Thank you as always for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye.